0: This is Iron Sports. We're honored to have Marshall John Fisher, who just completed and wrote a book. It's in stores right now called 17 and O." It's about 1972 and the NFL's only perfect season. Marshall, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports.
1: Hey, Iris. Glad to be here.
0: Boy, I loved your book and it was, it's like for people that are sitting, going to the beach and say, I, I don't want to, I can't get ready for my fantasy football season. Or, I can't keep reading about Tua. It's nice to go back to yeah. 1972 And look at at that season. And and the one question I had going into the reading the book was, well, back then they probably didn't think undefeated seasons was that so great. You know, who cared about undefeated season? You know, now we, you know, the 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 Patriots, all the teams, when they first lose is a big deal. But you mentioned in the book that it was a big deal back in 1972. People, they knew they were going undefeated.
1: Oh yeah, and the other thing is, um, people thought it was impossible. Um, So. And and when they got up to 8-0, 9-0, Don Shula absolutely refused to talk about it. All he cared about, he said, was getting back to the Super Bowl and winning it because he had never been able to win the big game. But um, players would talk about it a little more than he did. But, uh, you know, uh, Jim Langer and Bob Kuchenberg would be in the locker room and one would say to the other, well, I think Bob would say, you know, he'd say, Jim – Obviously, we can't win every game. No one can do that. So which one are we going to lose? You know, when, and Langer would say, well, we're not going to lose this week. We're playing the Patriots. So then they <laughs> then they'd get to the next week and he'd say the same thing. And they would go, well, we're not going to lose this week. Because each week they were the better team. But they, everyone had the feeling that it could not be done.
0: I mean, you go in your book, you mentioned 34 and 42. The Bears went undefeated, lost their last game. The 62 Packers yeah. were undefeated, but Shula stopped them. And then, of course, we know about the 85 Bears and, and the Dolphins stopped them. The, the team only lost one game. And, of course, 97 pats in the Super Bowl against the Giants. And it seems like, you know, when we talk about the, this team has now become legendary. There's only been one in the history of the NFL, one team that's gone undefeated.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I mean, it, it was 50 years of NFL football before them, and now it's been 50 years since then and you know, obviously the patriots came extremely close but they didn't do it. So, you know, when when something's only been done once in a hundred years, that's pretty special. <laughs>
0: And I love this story about your book. If mean, anyone everyone's probably been to Miami or lived in Miami, we're broadcasting from West Palm Beach. Uh, yeah. but the background of the 1970 to 1972 in Miami, that was not the Miami you see today. And you made that clear in the book that it was it was this town was it was totally different. First of all, you mentioned like the players are just living with the fans. I mean, they're normal people, they have other jobs yeah. on the side, but it was not this glamour in the hotels and everything that we know of it today.
1: No, that was a very Miami was very different back then. You know, I grew up there. Um, I, we moved there in 1966 when I was three years old, and, and the Dolphins were just beginning their very first preseason when we moved down there. And uh, I grew up there, and it was a very, very different place, and uh, not not as high, uh, not, you know, not as highly charged as it is today, and uh, not as crowded, and not um, and in, as far as sports, the Dolphins were the only. They weren't just the only NFL team in Florida. I I think they were the only professional, you know, major league professional team uh, of any sport in Florida. So, uh, you know, it was a lot different there. And um, in their first few years, it was kind of a quiet scene in the Orange Bowl with the Dolphins because they were an expansion team and weren't winning very much. But once uh, Don Shula came down and and they immediately went to the playoffs that year and uh, it just exploded, the excitement exploded.
0: Yeah, you mentioned in the book about Joe Robbie, who people just remember Joe Robbie Stadium. They probably don't remember he's the one who bought the team and brought the team here. Was a lawyer was trying to put a get deal together, and, uh, and yeah. we just saw that the Denver Broncos were sold for four and a half billion dollars. I think he bought it on a couple million dollars in some IOUs, and he was able to own the Dolphins.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't his money because he was he was he grew up poor in South Dakota, and he was he became a lawyer, but um, he was just a practicing lawyer in 1966. He wasn't a wealthy man. Uh, but he heard that a AFL wanted to start a team uh, in Miami, and so he jumped on it and he got some investors and he kind of stayed one hand one step ahead of the banks the first few years when the team wasn't doing well and he kept shuffling money around, and uh, he ended up making quite a lot of money on it. But he started the team, yeah.
0: And then. Uh, surprisingly, I mean, we, we see this, Don Shula is considered one of the top coaches in the game, coached for the Baltimore Colts, took teams who were well and lost, but they're able to lure Shula down to Miami uh, and give him an ownership of the team and those things. But that was a, a coup at the time that you know, someone like Shula would leave an established team like the Colts with Johnny United as their quarterback and come to the Miami Dolphins.
1: Absolutely. But uh, you know what happened was uh Shula, was, he was considered the best coach in football, but it never gone all the way he never won the, the super bowl and uh and with the colts he when he got there there was no super bowl and, the, and the, it took him a few years and he finally won the nfl championship with with the colts but it was the third year when the nfl champ had to play the afl champ in what they called the super bowl there's a super bowl number three and uh he lost that one humiliating loss to joe namath and the jets so after that his stock kind of dropped in baltimore the owner treated him very badly blamed him for the loss and uh the next year 1969 was a didn't, they didn't have a great year so i think um the owner carol rosenberg was actually thinking they wanted to get rid of shula although he hadn't told him that yet and when shula and shula was not happy there then so when he got the call from joe robbie he actually was all ears he there was a good chance for him to get out of there
0: He comes down there and the former coach Wilson, more lackadaisical practicing, those things have fun. And and Jula has, he put the term four a days. I mean, now players, there's not even two a days, let alone four days. You put that schedule together. You wrote in the book, from morning to practice. Like, you wonder how they survive. And then he also, no water. Can you imagine Florida, like going out, like people, (laughs) everybody in Florida is carrying a water bottle at all times. They had to practice in pads without water four times a day.
1: Yeah, well, that was 1970. His first year, there was a, a player strike while they were negotiating a new deal, and the veterans didn't show up until uh, a couple weeks late. And as a result, he scheduled four practices a day, and uh, they were just, the players all talk, they still talk about it, how brutal it was. And yeah, he didn't let them have water. Zaka said that Shula wanted them to be, told them they he wanted them to become camel-like. So when it was, they're playing a tough game in the hot heat down there, uh, the other team is dying that they would be strong.
0: And you've got to give Joe Thomas, the general manager credit, because as you go through all the players and sort of like with the Steelers, I mean, a lot of these players were not highly drafted. They were free agents and he just was able to cobble together this team of, of players that everyone was overlooking. What an amazing job. And, and considering how many hall of famers they were able to put together on that team from players that were just discarded from other teams. Yeah.
1: Joe Thomas was a huge part of it. You know, he. He, uh, he was there from the very beginning and, and he was something of a genius of a, of a player personnel guy. He, and he, he did all the traveling, the scouting, and he, he did the drafting. And, uh, before, but this is before Shula got there. So he brought in a lot of great players that, um, you know, they didn't come into their own until they got to play for Don Shula, but they were, they were there in 68. You know, he got, he brought in Zonka and Kik and drafted Mercury Morris and uh, Bob Greasy. A lot of the great players were there already. And uh, he made this, the incredible trade um, for Paul Warfield in 1970, just as Sula was about to arrive. It was Joe Thomas who got Warfield down there, and uh, and then and then he left. Uh, he he uh, did not get along with Joe Robbie, so he was not around for the Super Bowl victories. But he was a big part of building that team.
0: You know, a lot of people, when they talk about the 72 Dolphins, they say, well, the team was, you know, they went undefeated, but the schedule was one thing. They got lucky. They weren't really that good. But, you know, you go through in the book. I mean, they had three of the top running backs in terms of of Fame, Mercury Morris, and Jim Kick. I mean, it's sort of like if people are thinking about today, it's more like the Baltimore Ravens in terms of how many running backs. I mean, each one of them would be a first-round fantasy uh, pick. And then they have an offensive line of Langer, Little, and Kuchenberg. Uh, two of them are Hall of Famers. The other one probably should have been. And then to add on to that, that team, you have Paul Warfield, who at the time was considered the best wide receiver in football. He was the Cooper Cup, or however you want to compare it now. And they were able to trade for him, so you really had the best running backs besides O.J. Simpson, the best offensive line, the best wide receiver, and then and Greasy, a quarterback, and Morrow, a quarterback. But it was a very good offensive team.
1: Oh, and defensive, every single position they had a great player. Even if they made some of them might not have been famous uh, and gotten their due, but they had they were incredibly good team, no matter what the schedule was, you know, and that schedule actually didn't look so easy before the season, because some of the teams that uh, were supposed to be really good and didn't have as good a year as they were supposed to have, but, you know, they had to start out in Kansas City against the Super Bowl contender, then they played Minnesota in the Game 3 a Super Bowl contender, and the Colts and Jets were both supposed to be playoff teams. Um, but they didn't end up having great years. Of course, they had to play the Dolphins twice each year. But but that was a great team, and they showed it the next year because the next year they were even more dominant, even though they, they lost one game to Oakland early on and another one that didn't count later. But they completely destroyed the playoff and Super Bowl opponents.
0: I loved how you went through the book and, and game by game, and, and really there was the, only the one game that Minnesota, when they were con- had to make that comeback. Yeah. Everything else during yeah. the regular season, I remember they only were playing seventeen games. Now they played fourteen back then, um, and that and that Minnesota comeback was the, early in the season was a key game in terms of they really controlled all the other fourteen games.
1: Yeah, that was the that was the one, and of course it happened before anyone was thinking about undefeated. But yeah, that was a great. Brutal, brutal defensive game, two great defenses against each other. And the Dolphins were down in the fourth quarter. They they got a, um, a long uh, double-reverse pass from Marlon Briscoe, who sadly just passed away. Uh, that was a huge play in the fourth quarter. And then Greasy drove them down, and from the three-yard line, he made a fake run when everyone thought it was going to Donka, and he just pitched it over the middle to Jim Mandich for the victory. That was a great game. Uh, but you're right. Other than that, the, the two playoff games were pretty close. But uh, you know, the Dolphins. I don't. Uh, I, at least we fans thought it was never in doubt. But <laughs> the other team would think differently. But uh, it was. It, it was just an amazing team.
0: We're talking to Marshall John Fisher, Fisher author of Seventeen and O, about the 1972 Dolphins. And I guess the key moment in that season was Game Five, when Brian Greasy, their star quarterback, gets hurt. And uh, Shula brings in Earl Morrill, 38 years old, who has been a veteran in the league, won a Super Bowl with the Colts uh, at that time, but, uh, uh, but it, no, I didn't look It took the team Super Bowl, but the point is that he had to make that switch because Greasy was injured for the rest of the year. So Greasy only played the first four games and then in the playoffs.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You, know, you talk about good luck or bad luck. I mean, they lost their all-pro quarterback in Game 5, and that, that was the only game my family got to go to. I remember watching him being wheeled out from the stretcher and everyone thought, well, you know, that's the end of our season. But Shula had wisely brought in Earl Morrill, who had been the, uh, the backup for Johnny Unitas for Shula in, up in Baltimore. Uh, and he, he's 38 years old. He was going to retire, but Shula convinced him to come down and be the backup. Uh, and no one thought he would play much, but he had to come in. And uh, he, he won 11 games in a row for them. And he was just a funny, a great guy. He was so mellow and low-key, and he just came in, and no problem, handled the team. Everyone liked him and... He did a
0: great job, and it must have been fun at the end when everyone, after they're nine and zero, they realize they're going to probably a you know, chance to go undefeated. Then they play Joe Namath uh, at TV uh, at home and uh, and you mentioned the book. It was interesting, people. Uh the games were blacked out at home. Even if they were sold out, they were yep. still blacked out. And so people had to yep. listen to the games on the radio. And then the 11th game, the Monday Night Football game against the Cardinals, uh, Howard Cassell was there. And also it was, you mentioned in the book that TVs were black and white, really 70, 71, and 72 was the year that they became color. I, and that's where a lot of, in terms of watching color TV, and that's where the Dolphins, with their beautiful dolphin exactly. colors and those things, that's why people are Dolphin fans. I mean, I know so many friends that are like, have no connection to Florida at all. But when, well, my father was a Dolphin fan, or my grandfather was a Dolphin fan, so I became one, and they're living in Pittsburgh, maybe. <laughs>
1: that's great. Yeah, you know, color TV, some people had color TVs in the late 60s, but it didn't. wasn't until about 72 that the majority of households had them. So, uh, And then we were just like that. We had black and white in 71 and color in 72. So you know, that's another thing about that year that we, you finally were seeing it in a very different way. And, the, and, the thir- and as you say, yeah. Yeah, especially the dolphin. The colors are great.
0: <laughs> and then the thirteenth game, when the, with all this media, and remember, this is reminiscent of the Patriots. Remember that Patriots Giants game in the regular season where they almost lost that game, and that was because of, now they go in the media capital of the world. They're coming up and they're playing the Giants, and that was when that's when everyone started talking about undefeated season, undefeated season, especially in New York.
1: Yeah, game thirteen was played in Yankee Stadium against the Giants. We were still playing in in the stadium though. Uh, there's a very loud, it was one of the last games they played in Yankee Stadium. And it's the only time the Dolphins ever played there. And it was raining hard. They were playing in the mud. It was a tough game. The Giants or another team they played that year that were supposed to be make the playoffs. And in fact, they were in playoff contention until that week, which is the next to last game. So that was a tough game. And uh, as you say, though, uh, in New York, they got up there and everyone, all the reporters were like asking them about undefeated, undefeated. Whereas in Miami, it was more low key. They weren't getting that. You know, it wasn't that
0: big a deal. And then the final game of the season, uh, the regular season, was against Johnny Unitas, who was a backup quarterback. It was actually his last game that he played. And then you mentioned how they against the Colts at home, and then Greasy actually came back. He was healthy enough to play, came in in relief a little bit just as a for some series. But that uh, being Johnny Unitas considered one of the greatest quarterbacks ever game, that was his last game against the 72 undefeated Dolphin teams. A lot of history in that game.
1: Yeah, his last pass. For the Colts, ever uh, was intercepted by I uh, think by Doug Swift, <laughs> but um and uh, but yeah, Greasy was healthy again, and now okay, they're undefeated, they're going to the playoffs, but now Shula faced this big choice of whether to uh, bring back Greasy, who was healthy, or go with Morrill who just won like ten games in a row. So um, that was a tough one, and it was a very similar to the same choice he would had to make in Baltimore, which did not work out well, and they lost the Super Bowl, and he stuck with Morrill. so. That uh, <laughs> was a hard one for him And he, he, he stayed with them A little longer But brought, brought Greasy back uh, Midway through the AFC Championship game Yeah they beat the, up Just right
0: They beat the Browns On Christmas Eve And uh, And yeah. then And, and, and that, yeah, that was one of the games They came back And then You have mentioned about The AFC Championship game It's one of the first games I remember I remember that we couldn't See the game In my hometown And we Because it was blacked out And we had to drive To Cumberland, Maryland And I watched the game In a hotel room In Cumberland, Maryland oh, wow. Yeah and it was but I, when I'm reading, I, love, I read your description of that AFC Championship game. I remember, the Steelers had just won the game before on the Immaculate Reception, one of the most famous plays in the history right. of football and people thought, well, didn't they win the Super Bowl on that? No, they didn't didn't win it. They just won their first playoff game. But it was like, I think of the UNLV-Duke comparison where UNLV was this great team and they played Duke once and then they lost and they played again. And it wasn't that, and I just think too, the the passing of two great teams, the fact that the Dolphins were this phenomenal team and the Steelers then had this great dynasty and what a great game to have the Dolphins play the Steelers when maybe the Steelers weren't at their full strength whatever, maybe the Dolphins were there, but it was just, it's great to see when you look in history, wow, this game would have been amazing. I was not at the game. It would be one of those games I like to be at. Because, And you talked about how Larry Little, the offensive guard, went against Mean Joe Green and all that the competition in that game.
1: Yeah, that was such a great game. And you know, the funny thing is the Dolphins were 15-0, um, and 0, and the, the Steelers had lost two games, but the Dolphins had to go up and play in Three Rivers Stadium because back then, until a couple years later, the home field did not go to the better record. They took turns. The divisions <laughs> took turns hosting their championship games. So, so they had to go up there and play in this really tough atmosphere. You know, those fans were just brutal. And, uh, and they had to go up and do that, even though they were undefeated. And uh, Bradshaw got knocked out in, the, the, I think it was the first or second series. Uh, Jake Scott nailed Harry Bradshaw, and he, and he fumbled forward into the end zone, and it was recovered for a touchdown, which, uh, you know, no longer would be allowed. Uh, you can't do that anymore. But on that play, so they got a lucky touchdown. But on that play, Bradshaw got knocked out, and uh, Terry Hanratty had to come in. Although he played very well, Bradshaw came back in later. You had the battle between Larry Little, Mean Joe Green, which was epic, and of course the most famous play of that game is uh, Larry Cycles fake punt in the first half. He, when they were down seven nothing and kind of stalling, he faked the punt and ran 37 yards for a first down, which totally changed the game around.
0: Well, that was a, a great. I mean, that, of course, again, the the Dolphins dynasty, sort of the dynasty of the next two years, but the Steeler dynasty, yeah. then winning four Super Bowls in six years. A couple years later, that leads to the yeah. Super Bowl in L.A., uh, which was considering I was just at the Super Bowl last year and had to pay a zillion dollars for it, <laughs> the tickets were going for a zillion dollars. You mentioned that it was not even a sellout for the game; you could get in for fifteen dollars. But the Dolphins were only yeah. a one a one point favorite in that game against the Redskins.
1: Yeah, and some people like Jimmy the Greek picked uh, picked Washington, even though Dolphins were undefeated. Uh, you know, they didn't; they still weren't getting full respect for what they had done. Uh, and uh, but they, you know, Miami dominated that Super Bowl most for most of the game. It could have been a much bigger score. They had a long, beautiful touchdown pass to Warfield. They got called back for uh, illegal motion. And uh, another time, they drove way down to the two-yard line, and Greasy surprisingly went for a pass and got intercepted. Uh, and then, of course, the, bureau, the play everyone remembers is Gary I mean, uh you know, gaffe and his field goal. He's going for a 37-yarder, just nice, easy field goal to make it 17-0 in a to 0 season. And it got black, and he tried to throw the ball, and he went straight in the air. Then he, he came down, and he popped it back up like a volleyball when <laughs> it got intercepted for a touchdown, which made it look like a close game, but it really had not been.
0: And then uh, you mentioned in the book I have a big problem with how they give the uh, MVPs at the end of. The, I think it's it's total craziness. And you watch in the winning time yeah. how the question was, did Magic got the MVP in the in the one this first uh, championship over Kareem when it was supposed to be Kareem, but then they switched it. But you mentioned in the book that one person decided the MVP, yeah. and, and even though Manny Fernandez had what 18 tackles in the game, they gave it to Jake Scott instead.
1: Isn't that crazy? Uh, like one guy chooses it, and uh, they, they, a lot of people said he wasn't even watching because he was hungover <laughs> from being out all night the night before. So he just, you know, he saw Jake Scott make this great interception, which is true, but um, even Jake agreed that they probably should have given the keys to the truck that he got to Manny Fernandez, who had the, the best Super Bowl any defensive lineman ever had.
0: And I just loved how you described the players. And, and, and you, one thing you mentioned in the book was, first of all, Uh, what Chula emphasized was integration. Some of the teams were segregated, even on the team, and everything was together. People were in the different rooms, and that was important to him. And also how intelligent the players were. Uh, They they all had careers outside. A lot of people had successful careers afterwards. And it was was this brotherhood of a team uh, that people, you had three running backs all wanting to be the star running back, and they all were sharing carries, but they all got along. Uh, You don't see that in today's game as much.
1: Yeah, no, it's really true, and Shula deserves a lot of credit for You know, when he arrived in 1970, the, the locker room was segregated. <coughs> you know, the black guys were on one side and the white guys on the other side. And and uh, as far as roommates and training camp and on the road, it was all segregated um, by choice. You know, but, but, but the thing is, Shula came in and he insisted that uh, they integrate, mix up the locker room, and he assigned roommates, and they were all mixed uh, whenever he could. He mixed races in the, as, for the roommates, and he insisted on that they be a team and not be not be segregated in that way, and uh, you know, and that really worked. Uh, you know, <laughs> it really worked for the team and made them very close. And even though they had a lot of very different personalities on that team, they they blended very well as a team.
0: Yeah. And of course, it, it was one of those, I, I found it, you know, you were, you were, you were young when you were watching this and it sort of yeah. set the tone. I mean, it really was the team and it was, and it set Miami again, Would you, would you described the, the pictures. You have all these pictures of Miami, what it looked like in 1970. And then if you see what it looks like today, completely different, but I'm not going to give it all the credit to the Dolphin team, but it did accelerate the idea that Miami isn't just some place where people retire. It was actually going to be this modern city that people are going to go and enjoy and entertainment and... And work and business and all those things.
1: Oh yeah, I think that team made a, made a big difference. Um, and Larry King talked about that. You know, Larry King was starting his career in, in Miami and was uh, he did. In fact, he did um, color commentary for WIOD in seventy and seventy one. And and he was a, he was he loved that team. And I talked to him before he passed, and he talked about what a big deal the Dolphins became in the city and what they meant to the city. And uh, yeah, I mean they in some ways. The Dolphins put them on the map, put Miami on the map. Uh, People were seeing them on TV and seeing the city and it became a major league town.
0: Yeah, in your book, we're not we didn't delve into so much of it, but it was interesting in the book about you describe how the two political conventions was the only time I think one other time it happened where in the city in 1972 that Richard Nixon was the president at the time uh, was a huge football fan would call and write the the Washington coach and, and Shula all the time uh, and that he vacationed to Key Biscayne down in Florida so he had some interest with that so the whole mix of politics uh, with this team there was there was a lot going on in that book and and at the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. that was one of my main goals in this book, to not just talk about the football, but uh, of course of course, I do tell all about the team and the season, but I also wanted to weave in with that the, um, what was going on around them in Miami and around the country, because Miami was kind of a focal point that year for everything that was going on in America because of the two conventions being held in Miami Beach and uh, Nixon being down there so often. Uh, you know, Key Biscayne. So, uh, as you say, Nixon was a huge fan and so sure he, he plays a big role there. And, uh, I tried to talk a lot about the, you know, Watergate and the Vietnam War still going on and everything that was going on in society in the
0: background. Yeah, and the fact that the team was able to stay focused and still stay together as a team. So it was your writing style is great. The book is amazing, and as I, say, I encourage people when they go to the beach again, uh, this is uh, this is a good book. It's a great book to read and to learn and, and to and to see a team because you go through the play. It, it's almost a fi- in many ways it's a fiction. It reads like a fiction book, but it's real life. It's the seventy two team. So Marshall, I really appreciate you come on coming on Iron Sports and talking about your book seventeen and zero and encourage people to get it from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, every where you buy books.
1: Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Eric. I enjoyed talking with you.
0: Thank you so much.